for us, it's been an exceptionally good year compared to last year, which was an exceptionally lousy year. Lousy may be an understatement. This year, we sold a lot of multi-spindles. Old multi-spindles. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. As the end of 2021 approaches, today Lloyd and I are going to reflect on the last year. Though the pandemic continued for a second lap, a lot of companies in the machining business enjoyed a tremendous rebound. Thankfully for us, our used machinery business did really well too, which we needed after a miserable 2020. So sit back and enjoy as we ramble. We like to think there are at least a few interesting parts of the conversation. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. So uh, what's the date today? December the 3rd, 2021. Very good. And I am so happy to be here with Lloyd Graff, my dad, my boss, mentor, partner. It's just great to be together today, like we are most days. Yeah. I'm just absolutely thrilled to be able to work with you, Noah, and I consider you much of the time my mentor. Oh, my God. No, don't be crazy. Not being crazy. I mean, you've guided me on a lot of uh, stuff regarding advertising, regarding how to talk to people, um, which uh, you've studied the issues of reaching people and connecting with people. And stuff that I've taken for granted, you've really worked on, and I've learned from you. Well, thank you. I, I mean, it depends how you define mentor, but that really makes me feel good. Well, you've been a student of negotiation. Yeah, it's a lot easier to, to just talk about it, though, and be an academic about it than actually do it. But <laughs> Well, you, you've made many, many suggestions to me on negotiation. And many of them have been useful because very often I've negotiated from the seat of my pants and it's been experimentation and you've taken a, a more studied approach and it's been very helpful to elicit information from clients and have a sense of how to talk to people. And I've also learned from you how worthwhile it is to have real in-depth conversations with clients and potential clients. And my tendency 
is to talk to people, elicit information, and then hang up. So you can get to the next thing that you need to do on your to-do list. Yeah, but I see from you the enormous value in talking to people at length. And uh, don't get me wrong, I, I'm sometimes I just need to go on to the next thing too. But yeah, I, I try. <laughs> Hopefully they're interesting enough. But as far as the negotiation thing, everybody, FYI, you should listen to episodes 80 and 81 with uh, the Vosses. You know, they are more or less people that I have, have studied the way they talk to people, listen to people, approach business deals. Um, they wrote a book called uh, Never Split the Difference, which I've listened to a lot in the car. In any case, I feel the same, though, as far as I, there are many times where you may be flying by the seat of your pants, but often you have a certain vision, whether it's uh, bidding on a certain machine or going after a group of machines. You're a little bit more contrarian than me sometimes. I, I know I need to be contrarian. I need to go for and what what you always say, and we probably shouldn't be saying this here, but, but we deal in imperfect equipment. <laughs> you know, the machine is dirty or something needs to be fixed on this or that. And that's often the reason that you find treasure. Yeah, the opportunity is not buying two-year-old machines that are in like new condition. Uh, because to be very candid, there's no margin in those machines. And you're going to want really high prices and maybe you'll get it, but often people still won't want to pay for a used machine. Yeah. I mean, we saw that today with a client of ours in South America and, you know, they were representing a client who has an extremely expensive two-year-old multi-spindle and he hates to take a huge loss on it. And on the other hand, the client is unwilling to even approach his price. Now, one problem is that the seller is in the United States and uh, he paid a lot more for this machine than this person in uh, Mexico. So then they would pay. So you know, that is one issue, but it's true. People who have two-year-old machines that they pay $2 million for, they just can't bear the thought of selling it for half that, even though that may be all they can get. Whereas maybe a machine that's 15 years old, there could be a whole different, uh, an interesting window of what the hell is this thing worth? Anyways, we could talk about all this fun stuff for a while, and I'm sure more of it will come up. But, you know, 2021 is coming to an end. It's crazy. It went so fast. Been a hard year for a lot of people, particularly businesses, like if you're, say, in the service or restaurant business. But if you've been in the machining business and you've been a dealer that's played it right, um, your year should have been decent or really good. Our year has been quite good. I mean, it could always be better, but I, I, I think I think it was a good year, wouldn't you say? For us, it's been an exceptionally good year compared to last year, which was an exceptionally lousy year. Lousy may be an understatement. <laughs> uh, we've also been fortunate to get a lot of deals that are unexpected. Uh, like this year, we sold a lot of multi-spindles. Old multi-spindles. 
older multi-spindles, many of them out of the country, many of them to Mexico. These machines, I'd say two, three years ago, you would have said, this is done. These machines are, you're not going to make any money on these machines. And all of a sudden, there's a demand, not just in Mexico. We've sold some Acmes, some Davenports, a few Wickmans, and it's been it's been interesting. I think most dealers tell us they've also had really good years, but I think when everybody's looking for the exact same machine, uh, the Swiss machines or certain CNC lathes, it's difficult. Whereas if you're looking for older machines, maybe you can find an older machine that's available, or we have machines that have been sitting here for four years that nobody wanted, and all of a sudden you can sell one. But I look at dealers, and there are an awful lot of dealers who specialize in selling Haas machines. And honestly, I look at them and I say, this seems like an awfully difficult way to make uh, a significant living because uh, the margins on Haas machines tend to be very thin because Haas sells new machines at uh, very competitive prices. And also, so many dealers are looking for the same thing in Haas machines. Everybody wants a VF2, a VF3, a VF4. And everybody seems to understand what a VF3 is. Probably better than we do. Better than we do. And that pushes us towards the obscure, the machines that people are not fully aware of, the machines that actually have a limited market, and therefore it gives us an opportunity to buy them. And we're going to strike out on a certain percentage of those kinds of machines. Well, the people who buy Haas's are going to sell every single one of them. This is a decision that we've made that we prefer to dive into the unknown sometimes. Interestingly enough, as I've gotten older, my feeling is that I'd rather experiment more <laughs> than perhaps, you know, when I was younger. But part of that is necessity, right? Part of it also is the fact that over the last few years, I've been able to pay off all my debts. And therefore, I feel like I'm dealing from a position of strength rather than a position of catch-up. Right. But isn't it more that like before the business was buy an Acme, buy a Wickman, buy a Davenport, fix it and sell it for a lot more than you bought it for? You didn't have to buy a strange inspection equipment or, you know, a wire EDM that you'd never bought before or... And we've reduced our ability to rebuild machines. Our capability of rebuilding a lot of machines is reduced. Uh, but that doesn't appear to be a good game for us to be in anymore. It's very hard to find the people who are knowledgeable in rebuilding, and rebuilding is extremely expensive. It's difficult to get the parts. If you want to do a good job, uh, you always end up running into obstacles that you don't expect. If you have a real commitment to quality, it's a hard, tough road. Yeah. But at the same time, I found having really good people in the shop to clean machines, paint them, get them going. And we had a full-time electrician and 
we had them become part-time after the pandemic got into full effect. And then, of course, once he goes part-time, then we want him to come all the time to get every single CNC machine going. And then using our warehouse and using our, um, you know, that ability. Well, also, there's another interesting thing about this year. I made a decision early in the year that the labor market for skilled people, for good quality people, was going to be very tight this year. Also, Amazon building several facilities very close to us. I felt that the the wise decision was to give people significant raises, particularly in that we didn't have raises last year because of COVID mm -hmm. and the difficult business climate. You know, everybody suffered. We suffered, the owners suffered, and uh, the workers suffered also. And to some degree, I wanted to make up for that. But also, it was a defensive move or really an offensive move to give people significant raises early in the year to make them feel like we really valued their services, that we really wanted them to stay at Graf Pinker, like we were in business to stay. And it was one of the better decisions that I made this year. That brings me to talking about um, some of the podcast episodes we did. You know, we tried to do some seasons this year. And one season we did was about how people find skilled labor, because it's like a broken record here. Everybody says they're having trouble finding people. They say the number one challenge is finding people. They have enough work and you ask if they're interested in any machines and they go, yeah, well, if you can provide me with a person to run this machine, uh, I'm happy to buy the machine. Maybe that was just an excuse, but we did some interviews with companies, some really successful ones we know. And I think one of the main conclusions, most of these companies are doing well with getting people. And um, they're, one of the main things is training from within. They have apprenticeship programs. You know, trying to be modern, giving uh, flexible hours, you know, being very generous with pay. Um, what were some of the other things people talked about? Um, networking. Yeah, networking. A lot of people were very into having people who already worked for them bring in new people. That was one of their favorite ways to hire people. Because if they already had good people, they figured if good people associate with good people. Yeah, I've studied this and written about this extensively, too. And there's no one solution to uh, hiring people. Uh, there's a lot of different approaches. And successful people in the industry have dozens of different approaches to hiring people. Listeners, first... I gotta tell you, I'm so grateful for you guys tuning in. I know we have lots of competition out there. Freakonomics, This American Life, Joe Rogan. Also, I just want to let you know, if you have guest ideas or questions for me or Lloyd, we'd love for you to reach out. And if you want to talk about future advertising opportunities, we're very happy to talk to you anytime. Feel free to email me at noah at grafpinkert.com. That's N-O-A-H at G-R-A-F-F-P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. And now, back to the episode. 
Let's talk a, a little bit about some patterns we found with work people are doing. Um, it seems like what's in is uh, medical and guns. Shoot them up and sew them up. That is absolutely true. I mean, the people who are successful are doing that kind of work, medical and military. Or maybe they wanted, like we interviewed one guy a couple months ago, bought all these fancy machines to do medical, couldn't get the medical work, went into firearms. That's, you know, Democratic president. <laughs> uh, well, also, firearms made in the United States sell well in the United States. There's a lot of fear out there. A lot of people want to own firearms who never did before. Well, that's interesting that you say that because I heard this podcast. It's a favorite one of mine. It's called Stuff You Should Know. And they were talking about gun ownership in the United States and something you should know. According to this, if I remember correctly... Less people have guns in the United States than ever before. It's just that the people that own guns own way more guns than they have ever have owned, you know, just in case. Yeah. And I'm not a gun owner, but I deal with a lot of people who make components for guns, who are into guns. And does it bother you if you think about it? I mean, I'm assuming you just don't really think about it because these are often some of the most important customers we have. I do think about it. And I have accepted this feeling of, uh, of being betwixt and between on this issue. I understand why people uh, want to produce guns. I understand the demand for them. Uh, I am not a person who says that people cannot own guns in the United States. On the other hand, I prefer not to own a gun. And, you know, a lot of people may look at me and say I'm naive. But anyway, but I'm willing to deal with people who do. Now, and more than deal with people and work very closely with people. Yeah. Some of our closest relationships are with people who make gun stuff. Yeah. And in business, you have a lot of these kinds of feelings that, well, like uh, we got an inquiry from Iran. I immediately dismiss it. I won't deal with Iran. I mean, you could get also get in trouble if you dealt with Iran. Yeah, but I don't even think about it. I don't even think that I would want to deal with Iran. I don't want to deal with Russia. On the other hand, I will sell machines to China, knowing that the Chinese are authoritarian, the Chinese are persecuting the Uyghurs in their country, that they don't believe in freedom of speech. I, I find the uh, regime to be absolutely reprehensible. On the other hand, I still will sell a machine to China. I don't care to buy any machines from China, uh, made in China, but I will. Everything you buy <laughs> is made yeah, in China. It's made yeah, in it's China. hard not to buy goods built in China. Um, but this is the first year that I can actually say that we are seeing a significant amount of work coming back from China. Right. That is another huge thing about 2021. I mean, last year when people asked us, is there reshoring? We said, no, it's a myth. It's slightly anecdotal. And this year we've actually talked to people that have told us, I need a machine because now I'm making stuff here that we weren't making before. Yeah, and and the boats, uh, the container ships, 
stuck in Long Beach and Los Angeles. This is a reality. And uh, this is absolutely devastating for a lot of uh, major companies in the United States. And they're now looking for American companies to build product. There's, there's no doubt about it. People no longer feel secure being totally dependent on China for goods. Right. You, you were just saying that Ford has got, they're getting their own chip making. Ford is, yes, going to build uh, their own chip making plants. They're establishing alliances with companies that have their plants in the United States. I mean, uh, the chip shortage has devastated the automotive industry, which has devastated a lot of our clients this year. If not devastated them, has forced them into other kinds of work, a la guns and medical. Automotive work is unreliable. Automotive work is low margin. Automotive work is dependent on so many factors that are uncontrollable. The switch to electric, I have been a disbeliever for quite a bit, uh, quite a long time. Now it's obvious to me that we are going to have an awful lot of electric vehicles built in the United States and sold in the United States in the next three years. When I saw Ford hire Doug Field, which I wrote about in my blog, from Apple. He used to work for Tesla before Apple. Yes, and he was one of the key people uh, that got the uh, number three uh, Tesla, the smaller compact Tesla, which is the one that's found the big market. He got that to market uh, for uh, Elon Musk. And then Musk fired him. <laughs> and then he went to Apple. And now Ford has hired him to try to get the F-150 from the projection of being available next year to the reality. And they've got 200,000 orders for their Lightning. And honestly, I bought Ford stock after I read about Field. And I think Ford is going to absolutely get to the finish line, and they're going to get to the finish line way ahead of GM and Chrysler or Stellantis or whatever they're called now. And if they get the F-150 electric on the street next year, um, you know, personally, I think Ford stock will go to 100. It's at 20 right now. Well, you know, assuming we're having another interview like this next year, we can quiz you on that. Yeah, right. But... I honestly believe they're going to make it. And one reason is that rather than try to redesign the wheel, they're basically taking the F-150 and converting it into an electric, which I think was a brilliant strategy. And it's one that they're going to be able to pull off rather than try to build a whole new different vehicle. Right. Well, you know, I'm sure that'll be a springboard. Yeah. They did it with the Mustang. Mm-hmm. And now Europe, they're just at a standstill with their automotive. We didn't sell too many machines to Europe this year, just sparse. And in the past, we have. And you think that has to do with automotive quite a bit. Yes, I think that, uh, honestly, I think that the big European automotive companies are bureaucratic. They're heavily influenced by the government. And they have generally been unsuccessful as far as getting an electric vehicle in any kind of quantity on the street. When you see Tesla build a plant in Berlin and produce vehicles exactly on schedule, and BMW and 
VW and Mercedes-Benz cannot get a vehicle on the street that they can actually sell in quantity. I think it tells us that the Europeans are really going to struggle as far as making a competitive electric car. Yeah. Let's shift gears a little bit. COVID-19, you know, we, we have to talk a little bit about it, your feelings about it. I, one interesting thing to me, and I don't know how, how I'm going to come across saying this, but I'm just, just giving an observation. It's interesting how in our business, a large number of people are unvaccinated. I am very pro-vaccination. I try not to be too judgmental, but obviously and this is a case where everybody's going to, to be strongly opinionated. But I just find it interesting how people in manufacturing specifically, it's just a pattern I see. Maybe it's because they feel like the government is trying to make them do it and, and that's why. But, but even before any mandates, do you find it strange, Dad? Because, I mean, theoretically, people are working in close quarters in, in factories. They're the ones that can't work remotely. Yeah, I do. And people at hospitals. Honestly, as somebody who rushed to get vaccinated, I, I'm still shocked at how many people have chosen have chosen not to be vaccinated. And I think some people have religious reasons. I think it's just, but people just pay attention to what other people they associate with do. Other people, you know, it comes down to a lot of social proof. If all of your friends aren't vaccinated, you're probably not going to be vaccinated. Yeah. And vice versa. That's true. And I mean, I find it astonishing that uh, slightly over 50% of the African-American community is vaccinated. When, you know, on TV, everybody's advocating vaccination and, uh, you know, maybe 60% of the uh, Hispanic community is vaccinated. I'm surprised that vaccinations, particularly for people who have comorbidity issues. Pre-existing condition. Pre-existing conditions, overweight, age, diabetes. These are the people that die from COVID. I mean, almost 90% of the people today who die from COVID are people who have comorbidity issues. I'm stunned that more people reduce those comorbidity issues with vaccinations, personally. Yeah. If you're a kid and you don't have any comorbidity issues that are obvious, then I can understand. You mean if you're like, you know, 20 or... Yeah, in your 20s, 30s even... And, you know, you, you don't have any of these comorbidity issues that you're aware of. I can see why people say, I don't need to be vaccinated. Does it bug you? Yes, it does. And it saddens me, particularly older people or overweight people who have obvious comorbidity factors that aren't vaccinated. I feel badly for them. I feel they're being very unwise. When they have this opportunity and it's free to have a vaccination. No, I mean, does it bug you when other people don't do it because of the common good of everybody having it? Yeah, I do, because uh, it limits my desire and ability to go into a restaurant, to go on an airplane or into an airport. Uh, you know, I think that uh, it makes me unhappy. It makes me sad. Let's shift gears. 
Now, this brings me to a very important personal thing in my life. My wife is pregnant, and so this is obviously life-changing thing. And she was already one of the most paranoid people about COVID before this. But now, you know, it's just uh, hypersensitive. But we'll, you know, we'll keep this on the, the positive side. Anything else really important for you personally that happened during the year? When you think back on this year, what will you smile about? Uh, that I celebrated the 13th anniversary of uh, my heart attack. And the second thing is that I was diagnosed with epilepsy, uh, which I had probably had for most of my life and did not uh, want to recognize. So in a way, I'm grateful that it was pointed out to me. It's unhappy that I had a couple seizures, which probably weren't even related to the epilepsy, and that now I'm taking meds for the epilepsy, and the meds have side effects, which I don't particularly enjoy, particularly making me feel lethargic. But uh, it is a viable treatment for epilepsy, and it runs in the family. As I have it. But I, I was talking about, I wanted, I know we're just having stream of consciousness, you know, the conversation is going where it's going. But as far as highlights, you know, what I have to say is getting to be with family again this year. When you think about where we've been, like 2020, having to you go visit family and you walk down this, you know, the best thing you can do is take a walk and be on the other side of the street because you don't understand things, you feel vulnerable. And this year, you know, we've took planes, we saw our whole family all together. And we're very fortunate. We, we really enjoy being with our family. Every, every, everybody we have in there. Like, right. And, and I get to be with four grandchildren who, you know, all seem to be amazing kids. And, uh, you know, that's certainly been a highlight for me. It's been a much easier year than the year before. Yeah. I guess the, the big thing is that um, I'm happy to be alive and with my wife and with children that I love to be with and grandchildren I love to be with. And this is uh, an amazing uh, blessing at uh, 76, almost 77. And I get to work. And I think that's one thing. Uh, before we conclude this, I'm really grateful to be able to still have a major role at Graf Pinkert and work with you and work with Rex and work with the people who work at our company and uh, still feel that much of the time I'm on top of my game. And I think a lot of people at 76 can't say that. And for that, I am super grateful. Yeah, you should be. I hope when I'm 76, I'm engaged uh, like you. Well, it sounds like it's a stopping point. It's the sun is going down and you don't like to drive in the dark. So I, I look forward to, we look forward to uh, getting to do this podcast some more this coming year. Please, if you have any ideas, know any guests that should be on the show, would like to be on the show yourself, let me know. I mean, I am a little picky as far as who gets on the show. At the same time, I'm sometimes quite desperate. Uh, to find a guest and picky and desperate. I, I feel like it's an interesting paradox that many people deal with. 
I've just really enjoyed uh, working with you, Dad, and doing this show. Me too. Let's uh, to next year. All right, to next year. Cheers. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Mm-hmm.